came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 4th of July. 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today we are speaking with Professor John D. Horner from the University of Southern Queensland who researches exoplanets, exoplanet habitability and the evolution of our solar system. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So let's cross up to sunny Queensland now to speak with Jonty. Hello, Jonty. Good morning. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Jonty. Today we are speaking with Professor Jonty Horner, who is an astronomer and astrobiologist who researches exoplanets, exoplanet habitability, the evolution of our solar system, and much, much more, as you'll find out. He is a co-investigator on several Australian Research Council grants and is leading the construction of the Minerva Australis Exoplanet Search and Follow-Up Facility at the University of Southern Queensland, where he works. And that facility is being constructed at the Mount Kent Observatory in Australia. Now, Jonty is the Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Southern Queensland, where he works in the Centre for Astrophysics. Now, due to time constraints, I can't list your other credentials right now, your media work or your fantastic outreach initiatives. But let's just say from the outset, thanks for being so generous with your time. You are one extremely busy astronomer. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for the glowing introduction. No worries. So before we talk about your varied research passions, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Jonty, and tell us how you accidentally became interested in science and space in the first place? It's quite a odd story. I don't know. A lot of my colleagues come through and they only discover they like science. They only like particular astronomy when they go to university. I'm a little bit different to that. I grew up in the north of England, in Yorkshire, so I'm clearly not an Aussie local, my accent kind of gives that away. And I grew up in a place called Wakefield, which was 
very working class. It's during the 1980s, so the mines that were the dominant economy in Yorkshire just before I was born had shut down. And it was a little bit of a rough time in the UK, certainly for people who were working class and people up north. And I grew up in that kind of atmosphere, but with incredibly supportive parents who were willing to go above and beyond and help me do everything I was interested in, everything I was excited in. And as an only child, I didn't have anybody competing with me for road miles and parental attention, let's say. And it all began when I was about five years old, back in the days of VHS tapes. My parents had recorded something for me, and what that something was is really lost in the midst of time. It was probably a film or cartoons or something like that, but they caught at the end of it about 10 minutes of a British TV show called The Sky at Night, which is still running today, but was the longest running TV show anywhere on the planet with a single presenter for a period of more than 50 years, presented by this guy called Patrick Moore. Oh, yes. Who became Sir Patrick Moore, this big, avuncular, fat guy, you know, old guy from the point of view of five-year-old Jonty, who was really passionate and excited about astronomy, but had this incredible gift for communicating that excitement in a way that got other people inspired. And I always think, whatever the field that you're talking about, there are people who have that gift of communicating what they do in such a way that people who are not normally interested become passionate about it. And I find that, incidentally, I listen to a movie podcast back from the UK, and it's the same kind of thing. I'm not a mad movie buff, but the person who does the film reviews is so passionate and eloquent that they make you a movie buff. And this was the same thing with Patrick Moore with The Sky at Night. So five-year-old me was hooked. This is cool. This is really exciting. And it basically just went from there. I was definite that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which looking back at it is an incredible piece of good fortune because I think most people don't have that good luck of discovering their passion in life and what they're good at until they're much older if they ever do at all. And I found what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be whilst I was young enough to do something about it and to make my hobby my career, which is a great privilege. Fantastic. That's just great. So tell us a little bit about your school days. I was really looking at the support I got outside of school, actually, because Certainly at primary school, it was fairly nuts and bolts. You just got on, you did stuff. I was um, pretty high-flying at the time, but that was just because I was so interested in everything and I wasn't held back by anything that was going on around me, I guess. But at around the age of eight, we joined my local astronomical society, the West Yorkshire Astronomical Society. And I'm actually still a member. I'm currently their president in absentia, essentially, because they always have a professional astronomer as a president. And when the last one passed away... They asked me as a member of the society who'd gone through to become a professional if I'd like to take over, which was a real honour and a privilege. But through joining the Astronomy Society, I really got the support in what is a very unusual hobby. It certainly was back then for an eight-year-old kid. And that's the kind of thing that I was the youngest person at the Astronomy Society by 30, 40 years most of the time. But they were really supportive, and it meant that every single week we'd go along and we'd listen to talks and... There might be talks by members of the society on things that they were doing, telescopes they were building, things they were observing. Or once a month on average, we'd get a professional astronomer visit from one of the local universities to give a talk about their research. And that really let me keep my hands in, get really involved with astronomy as a hobby, all the way through primary and secondary school. And it really shaped my career, not just from the point of view of giving me the opportunity to learn more about research, and from the opportunity to learn about what, what I should study and where I should go to become an astronomer. But it gave me a real opportunity to start science communication. I started giving 
public outreach talks when I was about 10 years old, which is really, really fortunate because nobody as a researcher teaches you to communicate and nobody gives you that skill set. You're taught to research. And I was very lucky starting giving talks before I was old enough to realize that I could be embarrassed by it. I just dived in and I've always really enjoyed that side of my work. And I'm also very aware of the importance of that because without those professional astronomers coming along to the Astronomy Society when I was a kid, I may well not have ended up where I am today. So it's also a way that I can give something back. (laughs) That's fantastic. Starting your outreach at 10 years old is just so wonderful. So after your successful school career, you completed your Master's of Science degree with honours in physics and astronomy at Durham, then your doctorate at Oxford, then three years as a postdoc at the University of Bern, then you're back to the UK for a few years, then that big journey out to Australia, first to the University of New South Wales, and now you're at the University of Southern Queensland. That's a great expedition that you are on, Jonty. Why Australia? Can you tell us the highlights of this journey, please? It's very much the journey of kind of a random walk. I don't think when I started my undergraduate degree, I had aspirations to move to Toowoomba. I'd never heard of Toowoomba. Just the same as, you know, people in Australia had never heard of Chelyabinsk in Russia up until a giant fireball exploded over the city in 2013. You know, places that are so far away, so distant, just don't really hit on your radar, let's say. But I knew I wanted to be a professional astronomer. I knew I wanted to do my hobby as a job, essentially. I went to Durham on the advice of a number of the people who came along to give talks at our local astronomy site, but one in particular, Professor Sean Cole, who's a great cosmologist at Durham, gave me fabulous advice in terms of if you want to be an astronomer, you don't just study astronomy, you don't go and do an astronomy degree, you need to get physics. And the reason for that is that physics gives you the toolbox to unlock the universe, essentially. So it's like if you're really interested in cars, you can't just learn about which is the fastest car, which is the prettiest car. You need to learn how to use a spanner as well, because without knowing how to use a spanner, you can't fix the engine. That's the same kind of thing. So that's why I ended up at Durham, which is one of the great universities in the UK. It's the best teaching institution for physics in the country. It actually beats Oxford and Cambridge at a regular level at the quality of the teaching that they offer. And they do incredible research into cosmology there. And I had four fabulous years there. I then moved down to Oxford to do a PhD. And that was really driven by an experience I had between the third and fourth years of my undergraduate degree when I went out to Armagh Planetarium in Northern Ireland and spent a six-week research project working with Professor Mark Bailey there, looking at small objects in the outer solar system, these objects called the Centaurs, which at that time were very new, very exciting, and only a handful were known. And the work I did in Armagh let me develop an idea about a research project that I would like to do, something that I thought would take a few years but would be a really good thing to dive in and drill deep into. And so I contacted Professor Wynne Evans at Oxford and said, basically, I'm really keen to do a PhD. Unlike a lot of people who apply for PhDs, I don't need you to give me a project. I've got a project. Do you need a student, essentially? And he was very generous in taking me on board and mentoring me through the three years I was at Oxford. And as I say, I got my PhD. And it was all all the way through a lot down to networking, just who you meet, and really good fortune. At the end of my PhD, I had to find a job. And it just so happened that there was a young woman doing her PhD, sharing an office with me, Sarah Sagasa, who had come from the University of Bern in Switzerland. 
and still had friends there and she said, oh, no, you're looking for a job. Um, I just heard that they advertised for a job earlier this year and they didn't get anyone suitable, so they've just re-advertised it. Maybe you should take a look. And this is a job I wouldn't have come across otherwise. But because of her suggestion, I got in touch with Willie Benz, Professor Willie Benz, who became my boss, applied for the job, now I had the good fortune to get it. So I moved to Switzerland, took on my first job, had three fabulous years skiing in the Alps on a weekend, working, learning about planet formation. And at the end of that time, I got notified again through people I knew that through Professor Mark Bailey, who had worked with me at Armagh, that Barry Jones, Professor Barry Jones at the Open University, needed a new postdoc to do some interesting astrobiology work. So I got in touch with Barry and he became a great friend and a great mentor of mine for a number of years. So it was all just about the good fortune of people putting in a good word for you, essentially. I guess mentors looking out for you and meeting the right people and just having the good fortune that they thought highly enough of me to get in touch, you know. And that followed me all the way through. So I had fabulous time at the Open University, went back to Durham for a year as a teaching fellow. And then the move to Australia really came just because I was looking for a job. I wanted to find a position somewhere, and there aren't actually many postdocs going in the kind of work I do. There aren't many positions around for people who do orbital mechanics, do astrobiology, things like this. But a great job came up at the University of New South Wales, and I thought, well, why not? You know, give it a go. I applied, and I believe I was actually their second choice because I was waiting for a response for the job for ages. <laughs> Finally sent an email to Professor Chris Tinney, who was to become my boss, and said, look, you know, really keen to come. Have you got any news for me on the job front? He said, I'm really sorry. We've offered it to someone else. Then the next day, I get another email from him saying, sorry about that, John T. Would you like a job? <laughs> so obviously, first choice had backed out, and that began my adventure to Australia. And essentially, the rest is history. You know, the move to USQ was the same kind of thing. I was recommended on the grapevine, and they were looking for someone who could start very immediately, very quickly, to start up a group there, really, about exoplanet work. And, yeah, they hired me, and I was there within a fortnight. And it's all just been good looking. It's all really been down to the people I knew, and that network that you build over time really has come in helpful. It sounds like a great combination of serendipity and developing excellent relationships with people. It is. I've been very lucky to have support of some really great people and some really great scientists over the years who've put the right word in for me at the right time. And that's hopefully something, again, I can give back to the community for my own students and for my own colleagues as the years go by. Indeed. Well, you mentioned centaurs earlier. Now, we know that planetary science is one of your passions. Let's look at one of our larger neighbours. And it's great to see it's in the news again. Can you tell us a couple of things about our gentle giant, please. It used to be viewed as a giant vacuum cleaner that protected the inner planets from bombardment by comets and asteroids, but it seems that you've been involved with the modification of that view of Jupiter. And secondly, as we speak, our nighttime view of a great red spot appears to be changing. Tell us about Jupiter, please, Jonty. There's so much to say. I think a really good place to begin here, and it's very timely that we're talking at this time of year, is that Jupiter is at opposition. It's actually at opposition on the 10th of June, yep. which means at the moment throughout the Southern Hemisphere, winter, the Northern Hemisphere, summer, it's going to be very bright in the night sky. For those of us here in the Southern Hemisphere, it's going to be sat nearly overhead at midnight at the moment, and it's really spectacularly bright. For those in the Northern Hemisphere, it's low in the Southern sky. It's quite timely that it's 
at opposition at the moment because that means it's the perfect time to observe it. People can observe it pretty much throughout the hours of darkness. And that means that we can keep an eye on what's happening with Jupiter's weather. And this is where the story about the Great Red Spot has come from. There's an incredibly gifted astronomer called Anthony Wesley, who's based these days, I think, out at Rubyvale in Queensland, very remote, very regional. And he is officially an amateur astronomer. It's not his day job, but he's a very passionate amateur who's got incredibly good equipment, and he's an incredibly talented observer. In fact, he does research that is of a better quality than a lot of researchers who are professional astronomers. It just it isn't his main job, you know. Yeah. Um, and he has a niche thing that he takes the most incredible images of Jupiter with his home telescope in his backyard that are better than the images we get with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's wow. unbelievable how he does this. And as a result of that, he's been in the news quite a lot over the last decade or so with different discoveries he's helped make about Jupiter. He's observed a number of objects crashing into the giant planet, seen asteroids hitting it, the bright impact flares, the dark scars that are left from them. But in the last month or so, he's also produced these incredible pictures of what almost looks like the great red spot of Jupiter, this enormous storm system, unraveling, shedding streamers and tendrils of material and shrinking down in size. Now, this has got the astronomical community in a bit of a buzz and people are trying to watch to see what's happening. Because it just may be that the red spot is coming to the end of its life. It could be a life that's been a couple of hundred years or even 400 or more years that this storm's been there, ever-present, readily observed from the ground with even a small telescope. But what we do know is that since the 1970s, the storm has been on the wane. When the Pioneer spacecraft flew past Jupiter around the time I was born, a couple of years after my birth, the Great Red Spot was three times bigger than the Earth. You could fit the Earth three times side by side across it. Now it's only one times the size of the Earth. It's shrunk down by a factor of three, which kind of indicates it might be on its way out. It might come back, it might wax again with the fullness of time. But it may well be that this shedding of streamers may well be the storm system finally tearing itself apart. And this is nice because it reveals how transient things are in space. We tend to assume that whilst life on Earth is chaotic and frenzied and very changeable, that the heavens are immutable, that the heavens are unchanging. But everywhere we look, change is there. It's just that that change takes place on different timescales, timescales longer than a human lifetime quite often. So what we see as being sedate is actually a very changeable, a very chaotic thing. And Jupiter's atmosphere is just one very, very good example of that. Where I get excited about Jupiter, aside from its role in the formation of the solar system and its beauty as a planet, is actually that old myth that without Jupiter we wouldn't be here. The idea that Jupiter essentially acts as a buddy to the Earth, as a shield to the Earth and protects us from impacts. And this is an idea that really has its origins both in the early 1960s when we were finally accepting that craters on the Earth were caused by impacts rather than geological features. In other words, we were realising that the Earth truly was in the firing line. And also in the early 1990s, when a researcher carried out some work looking at the role of giant planets in stirring up and flinging around debris in the solar system. And he did some very basic computer simulations, not basic because he wasn't a very good researcher, he was brilliant, but basic because at that time the computing facilities available were very limited. You know, that's about the time I had a little Atari SC computer, or maybe even my Commodore 64. You know, we had computers that had less power then than is in your phone, than is in your watch these days, by orders of magnitude. And so 
that by its nature really limited the work he could do. But what he found was that Jupiter is very effective at clearing the solar system of debris in its immediate area. If you look at the long period of comets, comets like Comet McNaught that was so spectacular a decade ago in the Australian sky, those long period comets are very effectively cleared out of the solar system by Jupiter. And obviously, if something is removed from the solar system never to return, it can't pose a threat to the Earth. So it's natural to make the leap from that to the conclusion that if Jupiter wasn't there, there'd be a lot more things on Earth crossing orbits and the Earth would be hit more frequently. But when I moved to the OU, both myself and Barry Jones, my mentor, had had the same thought that this sounded like it was too much of a simplification. And there's a number of reasons we thought that, but there's a beautiful example of why I think it's an, um, a simplification in the form of a comet that was spectacular in the 1770s. It's a comet called Comet Lexel. Yep. It wasn't named for its discovery. It was named for the mathematician who calculated its orbit. So it was actually found by Charles Messier, who was an avid comet hunter. He scoured the skies every night looking for comets. And his fabulous catalogue of nebulae, the 110 Messier objects, was actually his lookup table of the annoying things he kept confusing for comets. It's like, oh, it's another bloody fuzzy bob. But I know that when I've seen it before, it's the Orion Nebula, that's M42, I don't need to think that's a comet. But he was also a successful comet hunter, and in June 1770, he found a new comet that was a bit odd. Within a fortnight of him discovering it, it was as bright as the brightest stars in the sky, but incredibly big and diffuse on the sky, and moved across the sky very rapidly. And that was odd. Most comets are bright when they're more distant from Earth, are smaller more easily resolved. This came incredibly close to the Earth. It's still officially the closest cometary approach to the Earth in recorded history, though we think there were a couple of closer ones in the maybe 1400s, time like that. When people worked out the orbit of this object, they found it was going around the sun every six years or so. And there's the obvious question then of, why don't we see it now? Why didn't we see it before? It's bright enough to be as bright as the brightest stars. It's coming around every six years. It should have been well known. So they worked out the orbit and found that back in 1767, three years before it came close to the Earth, it had been very close to Jupiter. And Jupiter had taken it from an orbit that brought it nowhere near the inner solar system and flung it towards our planet, launched it in towards the Earth to create this near miss. In other words, Jupiter adapted as a threat. It had taken an object that came nowhere near the Earth and flung it our way and almost caused catastrophe. Now, it was still many times further away than the moon, but it was a very close encounter. What happened then is really interesting, because obviously we don't see Lexel's comet anymore. We know about having a bright comet every six years. It turns out that Comet Lexel's orbital period was approximately half of that of Jupiter. So Jupiter threw it in, trapped it onto a six-year orbit. It fell in, fell past the Earth, went back out to the orbit of Jupiter, where it was at aphelion furthest from the Sun. And at that point, Jupiter was on the far side of the sun. Jupiter had done one half of an orbit. Yep. So Comet Lexel fell back in, swung past the sun again in 1776. And at that apparition, we didn't see it. It was on the far side of the sun from the Earth as well. But as it swung back out, Jupiter had now completed one full lap. And the comet swung out to meet it. And Jupiter's gravity flung the comet away again, taking it from an Earth-crossing orbit and flinging it somewhere. And the problem is we can't say much more than that because our observations from the time aren't good enough to tie the orbit down well enough to know exactly how that encounter played out. Most likely, Comet Lexley is still receding from the sun, never to return, and it's going to voyage amongst the stars forevermore. It's also possible it's instead trapped on a, an orbit with a period of hundreds or thousands of years 
with perihelion nearest Jupiter, so Jupiter flipped its orbit round, turned its aphelion to its perihelion, and flung it out into the depths of the solar system. So what that illustrates is that Jupiter has this kind of dual role. It's almost like Two-Face. It's this hero and the villain in one, in that it can take things that threaten the Earth and put them onto orbits where they no longer do. It can suck things up. If things hit Jupiter, they're gone. So it can take away threats that exist, but it can equally create threats that didn't exist before. It can throw things our way. And to work out whether Jupiter really is a friend or whether it is a foe, you need to look at the balance of those things. And so that was the work that I did during my time at the Open University. That was most of the work I did for those three years. Trying to look into that question in more detail, trying to figure out where the balance of those scales fell. And it turns out that the story is really more complicated than the work of Wetherill in the 90s would suggest. Instead of Jupiter solely being a friend, we find that it does a bit of both. If Jupiter were more massive than the Jupiter we have in our solar system, the Earth would be hit less often than it is today. Jupiter would be more effective at cleaning up after itself. Yep. If Jupiter were about the mass of Saturn, the Earth would be bombarded far more often because we'd be having more material flung our way, but Jupiter wouldn't be very good at cleaning up after itself. But if Jupiter were not there at all in our simulations, the impact rate of the Earth would be lower than that we have at the moment. So it's a much more complicated picture. And it's complicated further because when we look at the formation of the Earth, when we look at where the Earth is in the solar system, there's a concern that the Earth should have been a dry planet, having formed too close to the sun for it to have much of a water budget. There's this ongoing question of where did the Earth's water come from? And certainly some of that water was delivered by icy objects from beyond Jupiter's orbit, cometary objects, that were flung our way by the giant planet at some point in the distant past. So even when it's generating impacts for the Earth, it's not necessarily fair to say that Jupiter is solely a threat to the Earth, because without those impacts, we wouldn't have the water that we need for life on Earth. And possibly even without those impacts, previous species would not have been driven extinct to free up the room in Earth's ecosystems for humanity to evolve and develop and thrive. So it's all a very complicated picture, which is always the best kind of thing as a researcher. That is sensational. What a great story. I feel like we're looking at Jupiter as a matrushka doll, just layers and layers of research to be done there. There is, and there's always more to learn. It's one of the things I think is most exciting about being a researcher is we're essentially employed to ask questions and to try and find out the answers. And the best stories, the best questions are those where we still don't know the answer, where there's more to learn. And Jupiter's a really good example of that. It's one of those things where the deeper you look, the more complex there is. The more you learn, the more you realise you don't know. Fantastic. And I'll remind listeners now that even with a small pair of binoculars, you can discern a change in the positions of Jupiter's four largest moons, even over a few hours on a clear night. Some might be behind the moon at the time, but back to you, John T. You're an astrobiologist. Can you give us a short primer on astrobiology, please? And Giordano Bruno, was he a crackpot or a visionary? I take it we've come a long way since we burned scientists at the stake. And we now ask and provide substantial funding to endeavour to answer that important question, are we alone? And could you also give us the current state of play with the astrobiology research that you and your colleagues around the world are doing at the moment? 
there's so much going on. I, I think Bruno is a good place to start. Whilst we don't really burn scientists at the stake anymore, I, I know that some get strung out in the court of media sometimes. <laughs> um, fortunately, we as astronomers tend to be fairly immune to that, actually. It's one of the great things for a university is to have a really active astronomy department because people get so engaged and so excited by astronomy. It's one of the sciences that really excites people the most. But it's one that does that without, at least most of the time, causing controversy, without getting bad coverage as well as good coverage, without getting people riled up. And you can think of other scientific disciplines at the moment where the respect for science is possibly not quite where it should be, and where scientists have to be much more careful about what they say and what they talk about. In general, as an astronomer, I'm free to just talk about what I love because it's not usually that controversial. Even when you fall into an argument with someone who's still under the misguided apprehension that Pluto's a planet, it's not that <laughs> controversial. You have a bit of a row, but that's it. It doesn't really impact people's lives. Bruno was a, an interesting one. And I think saying, was he a visionary or was he a crank, is a little bit too simple. I think he was both. He was this, I believe he was a Franciscan monk, lived in the second half of the 1500s who was burned at the stake for heresy. And I think that in itself is quite an achievement, not at that time to be burned at the stake, but as a member of the church to be burned at the stake. You've got to go above and beyond to do that. And he said many heretical and many revolutionary things during his life, but where he's relevant to astrobiology and where many view him as the forefather of astrobiology were his comments on stars and life elsewhere. Put it in perspective, the view of the church at this time was still that the Earth was the centre of the universe, and the universe was unchanging, was perfect around the Earth, and the Earth was in this privileged place. And that's the context in which you need to take Bruno's comments to understand why they were so challenging, let's say. He said, and this is in translation, of course, that when you look up at the night sky, you see an infinite number of suns, and around those suns there are an infinite number of planets. That's something that at the time was just totally alien to people. You think the time that we're talking about here, you assumed that the Earth was unique and special, that it sat at the centre of the universe. And to say that the other stars you see are no different to the sun was heretical. It was very, very difficult for people to get their heads around. Yep. What's interesting about it, though, is that over the last 30 years, as we've come into what I call the exoplanet era, We've really discovered that Bruno was right, that planets are ubiquitous set everywhere. If you look up at the night sky, just as Bruno said, pretty much every star you see will have planets going around it. And that's a great revolution that has occurred during our lifetimes. I find it astonishing that when I was a young jaunty growing up at school, going to the astronomy club, we still didn't know if the solar system was unique or if there were planets around other stars. We had our first hints from spacecraft like IRAS that found infrared excess around stars, hinting there was dust there. But we didn't know. We just didn't know if there was any other planet in the solar system than those we'd found around the sun, any other planet, sorry, in the universe than those we'd found around the sun. And it's really startling to now think that there is now nobody on the planet who is under 30 years old who has lived in a world where we didn't know of planets around other stars. That's the revolution we've been through in our lives, and I think it's worth restating, because you take these things for granted. But we've seen incredible advances in science through my lifetime. And astrobiology has been a big part of that. It's gained a lot from it. Astrobiology, in its simplest, broadest terms, is the work that has been done to answer the question, are we alone? It's the study of the question of life beyond the Earth. 
and that takes many many forms and it's most not controversial but certainly it's most poster boy and it's certainly in its most hollywood style you talk about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence seti or even the search for extraterrestrial artifact mechanical devices things like this that is very much like looking for a needle in a haystack but not knowing what a needle looks like and looking at an entire country where there are haystacks everywhere it's challenging so in a lot of ways i'd describe that kind of work as high risk high reward it's not high risk in the sense that if we find intelligent aliens they're going to come here and wipe us all out but it's rather high risk in terms of you've got very good odds of investing money and time in this to get nothing out at the other end but of course it's high reward because if we did discover communicative intelligent aliens then that would be the answer to the greatest question ever asked are we alone well we know the answer but astrobiology isn't just about aliens it's about bacteria it's about the conditions that are needed for a planet to have life how widespread are those if we work on the basis of needing liquid water if you went back to the 1970s the assumption was that the only place with liquid water in the solar system at least was the earth and we now know that liquid water is everywhere under the icy moons of jupiter that you mentioned under the crust of europa ganymede and callisto there are oceans that each contain more water by an order of magnitude than we have on the earth more liquid water pluto has a subsurface ocean they're everywhere we found now permanent liquid water on mars buried beneath mars's southern polar cap so all of these things that we once thought were rare and scarce we're now learning are more common and whilst you might think searching for water in the solar system isn't astrobiology it really is because searching for water is searching for the things that we associate with life and it's a step on the way to looking for life beyond the earth but in the solar system and it's for that reason that nasa have this policy of follow the water with their missions on Mars. It was looking to see if there was evidence of ancient liquid water on Mars, because if you can find where the liquid water was, that's the best place to look for life. With the big caveat, of course, a big assumption there that life off the Earth will be like life on Earth. And that's something I flag up a lot, actually. We have this implicit bias that we don't realise that we have when we're communicating and thinking about this that when we're looking for life elsewhere, we're really looking for life like us. Not life like me and you, but life like Earth life. Because in the whole cosmos, we have a sample of one life, Earth life. And it's a lot easier to search for something that you understand than something that you've never even tried to imagine. So we can imagine, possibly, if you look at Star Trek, if you look at science fiction, all sorts of things, life on molten magma planets, life in hydrogen gas clouds, But we don't have any examples of that, so we wouldn't know what to look for. So at least at first, that search for life beyond the Earth is really going to focus on looking for you and I, looking for life that resembles life on Earth. It's not saying that there couldn't be other things out there. It's merely saying that if we want to find something, we've got more chance of finding something we already know and understand. And I think for me, actually, if we find the intelligent aliens, if we find communicative life in the cosmos... I still have this niggling thing that I think we're more likely to find silicon life than carbon life. And this is where everybody goes, whoa, what are you talking about? That's not life like us. But if you bear with me a second, I think that if you assume, and it's a big assumption, that life beyond the Earth that becomes intelligent to the level that we are, arguably intelligent, and they go voyaging out into space... The path that we're following isn't to send people everywhere. That's expensive and dangerous. We're sending spacecraft places. 
And the places we're sending our spacecraft are further and further away, both in space and in the travel time to get to them. So we're having to develop spacecraft that are ever more autonomous, ever more capable of acting independently. And with the advances that are going on with artificial intelligence at the moment, I actually don't think it's going to be long, maybe a few years even, before we are sending spacecraft out to space that you could to some degree consider to be alive, to be sentient. Yep. And it's a small step from that to have true sentient machines. And I think the spacecraft, when we finally start sending probes to other stellar systems, like perhaps Project Starshot that people have talked about, we are going to be littering space with interstellar wonderers that are silicon-based, a second-generation life, that have a creator in the form of humanity, that are going out there doing the exploration for us. And to a great extent, you could probably consider them alive. If they're going to study a star that is light years from Earth, they cannot, when they get there, ask what to look at because the response will take many years to arrive. They've got to be autonomous and learn what to look for. We're going to be sending that kind of spacecraft out long before we ever try and bridge the gap between the stars with people. And so for that reason, I think that we will litter the space with silicon-based life before we litter it with carbon-based life. And if other species do the same thing, I think that we're probably more likely to find an alien spacecraft communicating with us somewhere far, far away than we are to have aliens come visit us. I still think the odds are very long in either case, I should stress that. But I think if you follow the way that we are exploring space and we are spreading ourselves into the cosmos, there's certainly something there worth looking at. And there are a number of very respectable, high-profile researchers who are almost as a bit of a side project doing astrobiology work not into the search for communications from alien species, but searching for evidence of their artifacts. There's a guy called Jason Wright, who's a great exoplanetary scientist, but he's also published a number of papers about how we would go about searching for Dyson spheres, you know, species, civilizations that have enclosed their stars in a sphere of material to make it an entire living space and to totally harvest energy from their stars. Yep. It is science fiction, absolutely. But it's the kind of thing that you could feasibly do with technology not that too far advanced from our own, which means we could think of doing it, which means others could think of doing it, which means they could be out there, so we should think about what to look for, so we're not totally flawed when we see something odd. That's the high-risk, high-reward side of it. Like I said, the odds of finding something are pretty much nil, but you want to be prepared and you want to think about what you could find so that you have the best possible chance of actually making those observations. I think more realistic is the option of finding life in the solar system. And where I think that might happen would be probably on Mars if we're looking in the near future. The reason I say that is that there is a theory that goes around called panspermia that is admittedly somewhat controversial. It's one of these ideas that has had a lot of negative press over the years, but it's that life can be transferred from one planet to the next, a bit like fluids transferred from one person to another. The idea that impacts on Earth that dig out big craters can fling rocks into space yeah. without sterilizing them. Let them carry a payload of bacteria to Mars. And if Mars was once warm and wet, and we're very confident it was, that bacteria may have found a comfortable home to call its own and have led development of life on Mars. Equally, life on Earth may have begun on Mars following the same logic. It's controversial, but every experiment anybody does comes to the same result that this could work. Impacts can eject rocks without sterilizing them. Bacteria can survive for months or even years in the vacuum of space. So it's very plausible that once you have life on one of the terrestrial planets, 
it could have inoculated the others fairly rapidly. And since Mars would have been warm and wet for a billion years or more and only transitioned to the world that we see today very, very gradually, if life got going there in the past, maybe it is still there now. And I think that's probably our best odds of finding life elsewhere. So among high-risk, high-reward science, that's probably the lowest risk. Go to Mars, see what you can see. Even if you don't find life, you'll learn a huge amount about the Red Planet. You'll learn its history. You'll learn how it got to be what it is today. But a lot of the missions that we're sending there are still really driven by that question of, is there life on Mars? Fantastic. And that's the end of part one of our interview with Jonty. And in the next two episodes, we'll be coming back for more exobiology parts two and three. So let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Ian Musgrave and find out what's up, Doc? What's up in the sky? Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you once more as well, even though it is exceedingly chilly. <laughs> Indeed. But, although the cold weather here in Australia means clear optimal time for viewing planets and any other objects with a telescope because our skies are now clear and still. Of course, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's summer, so you have less uh, fantastic observing conditions. But for now, for us, the weather may be cold and we may be freezing our fingers and toes off, but it's optimal telescope observing time. Excellent. Well, let's get stuck into it right now. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? Most of the action is now in the evening sky. If you look to the west about an hour after sunset, you can still see Mars visible above the horizon. You'll be able to see Mars easily. But around astronomical twilight, it's still uh, relatively high above the horizon, around about hands band. Although you do need a little horizon without lots of trees in the way to see it. And above Mars, of course, is uh, Mercury. Now, Mercury is uh, almost at its furthest extent above the horizon and we begin to see Mercury begin to fall back towards the horizon over this fortnight and in fact by the end of the fortnight Mercury will be no longer uh, visible and will return to the sky, the morning sky next month. But for the moment the pair of Mars and Mercury uh, in the western sky on the fourth, uh, the thin crescent moon joining Mars and if you have a telescope capable of pointing low towards the horizon, you should be able to get Mars and the edge of the crescent moon together in a modest telescope eyepiece. Then over the coming weeks, uh, as the moon will leave Mars behind, Mars will head further along the highways. It's now now in Cancer and will head to the Beehive Cluster meeting the Beehive Cluster on the 14th July. Mercury is falling towards the horizon and dimming. It's closest to Mars on the 8th before it falls back into the twilight to be lost. Of course, dominating the sky at the moment is Jupiter. Jupiter is now well past opposition, but it's still quite big and bright and looks magnificent in even small telescopes. You're able to see the band very nicely and the shuttling of the moons. 
even in binoculars, we'll be able to see the moon shuffling about. We mentioned the, the last few Wilcarks that Jupiter's red spot appeared to be unravelling. The latest image I've got is from the 26th of June. I can't say that the unravelling has stopped, but Jupiter's red spot is still quite obvious. The large turbulent area that was around it, which was the unravelling, so to speak, it has become even bigger, but the red spot itself seems to be hanging on in there. So if we look at the progression over the year, the red spot's been shrinking slightly. This would be a very good citizen science project to follow the red spot as it changes over the coming month. Very good. Now, Saturn is at opposition this month on the 10th. It's good to watch with telescopes at any time, but now is a really good time. Saturn's rings are beginning to close up. So they were got in their widest a couple of years ago, now they're beginning to close up. And they're beautiful no matter what aperture you're looking through. Of course, it's not as bright as Jupiter and it's harder to uh, pick up. It's in a more densely inhabited section of the sky. So it's in a field of a lot of relatively bright stars. So it can be quite difficult to pick up. At the moment, it's just below the teeth of Sagittarius. Now, Saturn is visible all night long. Over the next two weeks, it's highest around midnight, although you probably can see it reasonably well from uh, 8 o'clock on. Saturn's moons are a lot harder to follow than uh, Jupiter's moons, but even in a small telescope, you should be able to pick up Titan, the largest moon of Saturn, into which we are sending a helicopter. Titans can be picked up, and if you watch over several nights, you should be able to see Titan move around. Very good. Now, in the morning sky, we've lost Venus. Venus is now so low as the horizon, you can't pick up anymore. And uh, Venus will come back in September. Still got Saturn, Venus will no longer be present, and Jupiter will have been set. Fantastic. For those of us who don't like getting up at the early hours of the morning, the evening skies are now almost perfect. We've got Four planets in the evening skies. Of course, two of them are a little bit hard to see outside of an hour after sunset, but the other two are absolutely glorious. And they're in a fantastic part of the sky, even though you may not have a telescope, you now have the Milky Way arch across the middle of the sky. You've got beautiful Scorpio and Sagittarius and the, the centre of the galaxy all laid before you. So it's a perfect time to go observing the sky. Of course, in the northern hemisphere, but you still have um, Scorpio and uh, Sagittarius to brighten up your summer horizon. So the message is step outside and look uppity. So Ian, do you have a tangent for us, given that we're approaching the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing? and Honeysuckle Creek and the Parks Dish capturing that for 600 million viewers. Indeed. As you said, we're almost at the 50th anniversary of moon landing. Our next astrophysics chat will uh, cover the uh, the 50th um, landing on the 20th of July. But 
just ahead of the anniversary, uh, they discovered the uh, well, they think they've discovered the um, the lunar landing module from the Apollo 10 mission. Now, the Apollo 10 mission was the uh, dress rehearsal, if you like, for uh, the moon landing, where they had the full mock-up lunar module, the uh, lunar module separated from the command module, got within fitting distance, so to speak, of the lunar surface and came back up again. In fact, they deliberately underfueled the lunar landing module so that the astronauts would attempt to go down and make a first landing themselves. Now, the lunar landing module was uh, named Snoopy and the command module was named Charlie Brown. And after they'd uh, done the docking manoeuvres, the Snoopy module was ejected and ejected by solar orbit and everyone forgot about it until going forward a couple of years ago, they started looking for the Snoopy module again and they think they found it. A fair bit of this research was inspired by the astronomer Nick Howard, who has been looking for it for some time. The um, module loops around once every 382 days, almost a year, and our next opportunity to have a good look at it will be in 2020, but it has all the features necessary of the module in terms of orbit, in terms of its timing, uh, in terms of the mass balance. So if it was an asteroid, you'd expect it to uh, have a certain density. Uh, the density of this object is consistent with an artificial uh, hollow object rather than being a rocky asteroid. Now, obviously, if this is confirmed, and hopefully in time for the actual uh, moon landing anniversary. That would be really exciting. It's also been suggested we could catch up with it and capture it, bring it back to Earth. And our very own Australian, Dr. Space Junk, is on the side of uh, keeping the uh, module in space as a, uh, a lasting monument. Oh, I've forgotten something. What's that? I've got something very important. Of course, we're talking about the moon in July. On July 16th, 17th, there is a partial eclipse of the moon. So the best view of this partial eclipse of the moon uh, is over Africa and India. Australia gets to see the eclipse mostly at moonset, as does New Guinea and most of Southeast Asia. And South America gets to see the eclipse at moonrise, whereas North America... Not very much at all. And Europe gets a fair go at Atlas eclipse too. So, from Australia's point of view, the East Coast gets to see the eclipse start just before twilight and the moon sets before maximum eclipse. In South Australia and Northern Territory, the eclipse start in the partial eclipse where about half the moon is covered at maximum eclipse. So it'd be well worth watching uh, from the central and western states. Western Australia has the very best view. For those of you who are in Africa, Europe and India, it's well worth finding your local times for this eclipse, and you can find, find that from uh, the NASA eclipse site. South America too, well worth having a look at. North America, I'm sorry you miss out. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Thank you, Brendan, and good night to you too. I hope everyone has clear skies 
to enjoy what's up there. And to finish up today's fabulous episode, here is the Astrophys news. A non-repeating FRB has finally been pinpointed with astonishing accuracy in a distant galaxy, opening a new door for our quest to discover the cause of these extremely short bursts of prodigious energy. Using 24 of the 36 ASCAP radio telescopes in outback Western Australia, an international team used interferometry to localise the exact direction of the FRB's source. Then, three of the world's most powerful optical telescopes, Gemini, Keck and the VLT, were called in to calculate the distance to the galaxy involved. One of the co-authors of the science paper is Dr J.P. McQuatt, and you can hear him explain his FRB research in episode 35 of Astrophys. Well done, JP. So congratulations to the team led by Keith Bannister of the CSIRO ATNF, Adam Della from the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University of Technology, and JP McQuart from ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research and Curtin University in Perth. In related news, a Russian team has discovered five new FRBs using the DKR-1000 instrument at the Pashino Radio Astronomy Observatory near Moscow. And finally, more great news that's related to this episode on exobiology with Dr. Horner. NASA has just announced it is going to send a drone called Dragonfly to Saturn's largest moon, Titan. The plan is to launch in 2026 and land on Titan in 2034. The aim? To find water and life. Commiserations to the other contender for NASA's mission funding, the Caesar Project Canal University team, who were ready for a sample return mission to Comet 67P choyamov gerasimenko We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!